Well, what a joy uh, for me to sing with you this morning. Uh, so good to hear your voices. So good to be encouraged uh, in the gospel. That's what singing is supposed to do. Uh, glorify God and encourage uh, the saints. What a joy. Christians should never find themselves alone in the slow of despondency. Written in 1678, Pilgrim's Progress tells the, the journey of Christian, a man from the city of destruction on his way to the celestial city to come, that is, heaven. Encountering all sorts of trials and temptations, Christian's first trouble is the slow of despond. But as if despondency were not troublesome enough, his two initial fellow journeymen named Obstinate and Pliable cut out early and go back home. Before they even reach the first side of trouble, Obstinate loses faith and turns back saying, I will not go back. I will go back to my place. I will be no companion of such misled, fantastical fools. So Pliable and Christian continue together only to suddenly fall into a, a miry bog, the slow of despond, or we might refer to as the swamp of despondency. And they both began to sink. Pliable became angry and chided Christian, saying, is this the happiness that you have told me all this while? When remembering him speaking about heaven. If we have such ill speed at our first setting, what may we expect between this and our journey's end? May I get out with my life. And with that, Pliable gave a desperate struggle or two, got out of the mire on the side of his own house, went away, and Christian saw him no more. Bunyan simply notes next in the narrative, wherefore Christian was left to stumble in the slow of despond alone. Brothers and sisters, Christians should not find themselves alone. We ought not to go alone. We ought not to leave each other in discipleship alone. Some of us may be walking alone, and we're unaware of it. We're around some people in large groups, but we don't really walk with anyone. Others might be bogged down in the slow of despondency, Others caught in temptations and weighed down in weakness by trials. When it comes to maturing, when it comes to growing, when it comes to making the journey to heaven to be with God, we need help. And God's plan is that we would help each other, help each other grow. My hope today we will get to in our sermon is that you would leave this room today with a fresh vision for God-energized dedication to the struggle of lifelong discipleship. Let's pray. God, would you be with us this morning? We are here to open your word, and we need your spirit to hear it, not only with our ears, but to hear it in our hearts, to hear it in our souls. 
Father, I pray that you would be merciful and gracious and that we would not leave here having eyes but not seeing, having ears but not hearing, but that you would do a work by your spirit and a a recreating work by your word to make new things in us, to make us new from the inside out. Father, in so many ways we need conviction for sin. In so many ways we need encouragement and faith. And you know what all of our hearts needs. Probably a little bit of both in so many ways. Would you help us? Hear your word with power. Hear your word by your spirit and not by man. Would you make it so? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are in week three of kind of an impromptu sermon series on growing spiritually. And uh, I'm very excited about what God's Word has to say for us today, but I'm also, I think, maybe more excited to get back into the book of Revelation next week. So we'll be back in Revelation chapter... So someone just did a fist pump. That's how bad the last two weeks have been. Uh, it's like, well, just get us to Revelation. Let's just go. But so excited about that. So look forward to that uh, next week. Uh, this week we'll be finishing this short series, topical series on growth. So I didn't mean to discourage you. Feel free to fist pump as much as you want, Scott. I, I welcome it, okay? Week one, just to recap, to get us to today, Christians ought to grow. That's kind of what we looked at the first week. Christians ought to grow. We're, we're saved to grow. Ephesians chapter one says that God chose us before the foundation of the world, that in Christ we should be holy and blameless before him that in every way we would be able to stand in front of God, mature on the day of judgment, on the, on the day of entering heaven, mature in Christ. And that's what God saved us for. That's why he chose us to do that lifelong work, to become a Christian, to be saved, but not to grow and mature and sanctify is like getting a star on your helmet but never playing in the Cowboys game. Like, it's just, it's a, it's a letdown. I mean, playing for the Cowboys might also be a letdown, but why have the helmet if you're not going to get in the game? It's like going to college, but never getting a job, never, never actually putting to, to practice what you just spent $100 million on your education for. It's like being grown and transformed. Like, it's like being a baby, but never growing up into mature adulthood. We're not born just to exist as babies. We're, we're born to grow. Likewise, salvation is for sanctification. There is an ought in our growth that comes from why we were saved. Paul summarizes it well, I think, in Romans 12, 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. My, my appeal is that God has been so merciful to you in Jesus Christ, crucified for your sins. I appeal by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be transformed, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. So you see, this is the hinge in Romans, you might remember, where Paul says, because God has been so gracious to you, now follow through with that in all of your worship, which is transforming and conforming yourself to the likeness and the image of Jesus Christ. Grow. You respond to God's grace by growing. God's grace is for the purpose of growing. That's the only fitting response to the mercy of Jesus Christ crucified for us, for our sins. 
There is no fitting way to say, I'm so thankful for Jesus forgiving me for my sins and dying on the cross for my sins and then running back into my sin and enjoying my sin and cuddling my sin and just protecting it here on the side while I also protect some religion. That defeats the entire point of why Jesus died on the cross. It was to get rid of sin and lead us to rid ourselves of sin through sanctification of the Holy Spirit as well. Paul calls us in Philippians 2 to work out our salvation. Not work in our salvation by works, but work out our salvation. So Christians ought to grow. That was week one. Really quickly, week two was that God is the one who gives the growth. We saw this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that it is Paul who came and planted the seed of the gospel. Apollos came on and watered that, but it is God who gives the growth. And we saw exclusively it's God only. What is Paul and what's Apollos? They're nothing. Only God who gives the growth. So because of that, we pray and ask God to give us growth. We ask God to give, we don't, we don't just give our growth to God, we ask God to give us growth. And we thank God for growth. We praise God that he is growing Christians around us. And we trust that God will give growth to those who are in Christ. We can take steps of faith. We can go back to our life group. We can lead a life group. We can submit to a life group leader, trusting that even if they're not on their game Thursday night, it's God who gives the growth. It's not Paul. It's not Apollos. It's God who gives the growth. I find great joy in this. I'll just, I'm going to say this real quick. My wife might not like this. I'm just going to do it. There's sometime in the recent weeks, I went home, and uh, I've, I've learned to only do this if I'm, if I'm really ready for it. But I say, babe, how do you think the service was this morning? How do you think the sermon was? And sometime in the recent week, she said, ah, the sermon was a little, little hard to follow. It really wasn't put together well. I was like, all right, well, we're done, you know? But, <laughs> That's just such a joy to rest in that my worst effort as a life group letter, your worst effort, your best effort, God, God's not needing you so much as he's working through you. He gives the growth through the ministry of the word. What a joy, what an encouragement to submit ourselves into discipleship knowing God gives the growth. We're going to see number three, week three, this week. And Jesus commissions his followers to help each other grow. Jesus commissioned his followers to help each other grow. We ought to grow. That's the gospel. God's the one who gives the growth. Praise God. God has also commissioned his disciples, his followers, to help each other grow. Let's see that in the Great Commission, as we call it, in Matthew chapter 28 verse 16 through 20, which Marilyn read for us. Look there again and look at a couple of things in particular. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, now this is important, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is no one else to appeal to. We have authority to do what? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This is why we have an absolute clear conscience of sending Christians into places where the government would say it is illegal. You're not the final authority. The Taliban is not the final authority on who gets to go in and make disciples of Afghanis. God is. 
Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In verse 20, this is part of the Great Commission. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We refer to this as the Great Commission. comes to us with all authority in creation. And I think it's so easy for us to condense this down into get people saved in all the nations when the commission is actually go farther than that, baptize them, bring them into the church, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Make disciples. Don't just make converts. Make disciples. And the way you make disciples is by leading them to faith in Christ, but also teaching, discipling them, teaching them. And Jesus gives this commission to the apostles, gives this commission to the church to help each other grow. This is Jesus' plan for us to learn all that he has commanded us. This keeps replicating itself through the generations, through the nations, everywhere the gospel goes, the command to teach one another, to observe all that I have commanded you, goes with it. Here are a few places of what that looks like in the New Testament, just a few flyby observations. You can write these down. If you can turn and follow along, great, but I just encourage you just to listen to these. Paul says in Romans 15, verse 4, I myself am satisfied about you, speaking to the church, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. I'm satisfied about you, church, because you're able to instruct each other about the gospel and how to live and how to walk. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 says it like this, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. Speaking the truth to one another in love, that's how we grow up in every way. And to him who is the head and to Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It builds itself up. It helps, it helps itself grow. If Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 13, Paul says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart. Seeing the temptation in the congregation of Hebrews there to fall away from the faith. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. How can we avoid that? How can we avoid falling away from the living God and have an evil, unbelieving heart? Verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Without exhortation every day, there is the temptation to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We wake up one day and our hearts are hard towards God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Just consider how fundamental just these examples are and how Christians help each other grow and mature in discipleship. Christians help one another in just these passages alone grow in love, grow in faith, grow in works, and be encouraged. Christians are to help each other grow 
every day and in every way. Consider how fundamental discipleship is in that way. Friends, consider whether or not you are doing this. The Great Commission did not end in Austin when we got a few churches a hundred years ago. And it didn't end with a baptism two weeks ago. And it doesn't end because we get together and we have a service and we do some singing and we see each other and we gather and we give our money. The culmination of the Great Commission is that we help each other grow, teaching one another, exhorting one another, encouraging one another to observe all that Jesus has commanded. Friends, either we're doing this or we are not. Is someone helping you follow Christ and grow in following Christ or not? You're either leading or helping someone else go, praying with someone, reading the Bible with someone, talking through someone else's sin, talking through someone else's trials, or you are not. And that's not just an optional, well, I'm not doing that, but, but you know what, that's just not my kind of take on Christianity. No, that's the commission. You don't, we don't have the authority to say that the commission, the mission of the church is anything less than teaching all of Jesus' disciples to obey all of his commands. We don't have the authority to, to do a different way. We're either disobeying God's command to exhort, help, teach one another, or we're disobeying the Great Commission. It's only one or the other. COVID has reared its head again. I, I just, I keep saying that I quit predicting what's going to happen with COVID, but I just keep being more surprised. I don't, I don't know about you, I'm just tired of it. I'm just tired of the world that we live in. You know, now it's COVID, now it's Ida, now it's Afghanistan, now it's just keep going down the line. It's the, I don't even know, I don't, I don't know what's the count on the trillion dollar budget right now, I don't even know what it is. I mean, just the, the craziness that we, that we live, it's exhausting. I've been thinking about COVID a lot the last few weeks, my, my youngest daughter is eight. A year and a half, one year, five months, two weeks ago, today, we canceled our first service for COVID, March 14th, 2020. A year, five months, two weeks. My daughter's eight. That's, that's a big portion of her life. That's a lot of time that we have been living dominated by COVID rhythms, COVID relationships, COVID schedules, COVID boundaries. And friends, I just think there's a temptation right now in our culture, society, in our city, and in our church to just think that we're going to accidentally fall out of COVID back into something intentional, something good, something building up. But no one's going to come out of a year and a half of COVID life toward maturity on accident. God didn't commission us that way. Maturity actually never happened accidentally, not before COVID, not ever. Even we're just going about our lives and COVID wasn't even an idea. We didn't even know that it was in China. We didn't even know that it was anywhere. 
Maturity has always happened with intentional exhortation, teaching, preaching, listening, sharing, praying. That's how maturity happens. And the spiritual side effects of COVID, I think, are at least two right now. One, we seem to be more easily divided than before. We're so easily polarized. We're so easily suspicious of everyone that we're in a room with. They just created that. Everyone's on some side of some question. And being suspicious is easy in the air. And ironically, at the same time, I think there's an opportunity for apathy. Our love, our faith muscles have atrophied like we're getting old. Sin, selfishness, pleasure, those things are easier. Picking up selflessness, those things are heavier than that because we quit training. We, we, we set those things aside. Friends, I just want you to know, I want you to remember that the commission itself tells us that there are people around us, men, women, students, children in our church who are hungry for help. They might, they might not even know it themselves. They might not even look hungry. Their faces might not show it. But signs of the need for discipleship are there before COVID, during COVID, after COVID, and they'll be there in the future. When someone's really hungry for food in their stomach, you can tell. They might get hangry, for one. Or two, you can hear the sounds in their stomach. You hear those sounds turning. Some of you are thinking, that's me now, so let's cut it short, preach. What does an empty stomach sound like in discipleship? When we're really hungry for discipleship, the kind of stomach of our soul grumblings come out. We start to hear ourselves be anxious more and more instead of at peace. Our hearts are apathetic towards each other, towards the lost, towards our brothers and sisters, instead of filled with love. We're suspicious of one another. The distance has created suspicion of each other rather than trust and charity. There's doubt instead of faith, bitterness instead of tenderness, complaining instead of gratefulness, believing lies instead of truth, pleasure in sin instead of rejoicing in righteousness, aimlessness instead of being directed towards purpose in God's glory. These things start to grumble up in our souls and make their way into our mouths and into our voices when we are not sharing dinners together, when we're not opening our Bibles together, we're not pouring out our hearts together, when we're not praying for one another's sin and struggles and needs together. And that's not so much because of COVID broke something, but because the commission is to help each other. So, so when we don't do that, the things that com- the, the commission is meant to do, the, the discipleship's meant to do, when those things don't happen, the things that, that that's supposed to cause, they don't happen. So what do you think happens when we don't encourage one another, as Hebrews calls us to do? We're discouraged. When, when we aren't there to exhort one another, like Hebrews 3 what hap- says, what happens We're given and we're tempted to an unbelieving, hardened heart. Some of you might just need to admit, I feel that happening to me because I've been avoiding discipleship. What happens when we're not comforting one another? We're not mourning with one another. We're anxious. And our 
isolation. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. What happens to the idle who are not admonished? Probably going to stay idle. What happens to the faint-hearted who are not encouraged? And they're very likely to stay faint-hearted. What happens to the weak when they're not helped? If we don't help each other grow, we don't grow. If we don't help each other in the journey to heaven, we're likely to fall. Remember that Growth is given by God. God gives the growth, but God gives the growth through Paul planting and Apollos watering. It's through these commissioned means of teaching one another to observe everything that Jesus has taught us. Really quickly, here are seven fundamental ways we can step into discipleship immediately. Number one, and most importantly, stay and remain committed to gathering with the church for preaching, prayer, and singing. Stay and remain committed to gathering for the, with the church for preaching, prayer, and singing. This is fundamental discipleship 101. Gather with the church to hear the word preached and singing. And commit to that. That's not just like, well, you know, for free. I don't know if we, if we, I don't know if we it depends on how we feel. Let's see how we feel Saturday night. Commit to that as a regular means of grace. The second way. And these are pretty much in order of importance, I would say. Church prayer gatherings. Gather with your church to pray. When your pastor, listen, something happens to me, I don't show up next week, and I never come back to Millwood Baptist Church, I go to be with the Lord. There should be prayer meetings at this church. And you should come. And you should pray as a church. Pray together. Charles Spurgeon was recalling in how in previous days there would be just four or five for their Sunday p.m. prayer meeting. At one meeting, however, later, years later, he rejoiced one night, saying, it fills my heart with gladness and my eyes with tears of joy to see many hundreds of persons gathered together at what, sometimes wickedly, at what is sometimes wickedly described as only a prayer meeting. Friends, let us never refer to this church's prayer meeting as only a prayer meeting. Third, church member meetings. If you're a member of our church, come to our members' meetings. Don't make it a question. You should come. You have responsibilities there that are unique to membership. There are things that we do there that are unique to church meetings, that are encouraging, that are faith-building. One of the things I like to say about our church members' meetings, they're really just a prayer meeting with a church member agenda. We just kind of stop and pray through the time. And what I, one of the things I love about our members' meetings recently in the last couple of years, if I don't say, let's stop and pray about this, some member will say, hey, can we just stop and pray about this? I, just, I, I love it. Number four, one-on-one discipleship or life groups. One-on-one -on -one discipleship or life groups. Being in a place where you are known so intimately. Like you, when we come to church and gather here, that's extremely important. But you might not have a conversation about the depths of your soul in the foyer. And that's okay. So one-on-one -on -one discipleship or life groups is that opportunity where you share about sin struggles, about faith, about doubt, and you actually pray for one another personally in those things. Number five, building blocks. That's our kind of education hour here at this church. 
every Sunday morning, God, God willing, going forward, COVID doesn't rise and the creeks don't rise and all that. 9.30 Sunday morning, we're in building. We're just studying the Bible. We're not sharing too much. We're not praying for each other's needs. We're just studying the Bible. Number six, serving in children and youth ministry. Discipling our children, discipling our students. When you get an email from Laura, if you haven't talked with Laura yet, our children's coordinator, talk with her about how you can serve in the children's ministry or with the students. Number seven, evangelism together. It really happens in so many of those realms. We do evangelism. We pray for each other's evangelism. We, we go talk to someone to lunch together with evangelism. We do that together. Now, it's not a promise. It's not a wholesale solution. But if we're walking in all or some of these, it's going to become more difficult to say, I'm going at it alone. I'm left in the slow of despond alone. That's going to be really hard to say if you're in just like three or four of those. Because that's, that's how they're intended. Now, all of discipleship is not bound up in seven programs that we do at a church, right? It, it happens when someone passes away and our life group comes to your house on Saturday night. It happens when we go do things together out in the world Saturday. It happens everywhere. But these are kind of the benchmarks, the places they're in kind of a regular weekly rhythm where we're making sure I'm giving care to my soul. I'm going to help exhort one another by being in God's word, praying for each other. In discipleship. And I just think so often we, we would be shocked at just how the simplest things in discipleship help one another. I'll tell you about couple A and couple B who were in my uh, life group early on here at our time in Millwood. Couple A comes to me in private uh, some point in our life group. We got like eight or ten couples or something like that. I don't remember how, how many were there. And comes to me in private and says, listen, we're having trouble having children. And we just want you to pray for us. We'd love you to talk with some counsel. We just want to kind of maybe talk options and just would you pray for us and talk with us? So I told Culpa A, I said, listen, you, I just want to encourage you, pray with you, talk with you, counsel. But I really encourage you to talk to your life group about this, our life group, my life group in my house. Share this in the life group. Share, when you get there next week, share this with them out loud so they can pray for you. You don't have to feel alone. You can go through this, right? Week goes by, week goes by, doesn't get shared. That's fine. No pressure, right? When you're ready, you're ready when you're ready. They come to me again weeks later and say, would you pray for us? No, it's going well. I said, happy to pray for you. Let's talk about this. Pray for you. I'm here for you. Have you thought about talking to our life group? We just share with them, you know, no pressure, but just feel some pressure to do that, right? See how that works? It's a pastoral nudge. N didn't share. Couple B in the same life group comes to me privately. Can we talk with you? Yeah, what's going on? We, we can't have children. We're trying. It's not working. So would you just pray with us, talk with us? Tell them the same thing. Talk to the same situation. Pray with them. I tell them the same thing. Would you just consider maybe sharing this with a life group? Like saying it out loud in front of some other couples, let them pray for you. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. So the, go to life group. Go, no one's sharing about infertility in our life group. Couple B comes back to me again. I had the same conversation again. Why don't you share with our life group? And I just prayed, God help them have courage and do this. And so one week, couple B comes in life group. It's prayer request time at the end of our life group. And couple B just speaks up. And through fear and trepidation, I don't know if it was the husband or the wife, just say, we just want to ask for prayer because we're having trouble having children. And it's like as soon as they got it out, it was just like, we're done. We did the thing. Now just pray, Okay. Couple A wife almost yells, us too, 
us too. That is so crazy. We're having a hard time having children. We're so thankful that you said that. Now let's pray about it. Let's talk about it. And I'm over here going, what have we been doing for six months sharing this? Now, God's grace is how it works. Like there's a growth there a willingness to share things that, that weren't willing to be shared before. Someone else shares, and then this encourages you to share. Now we're all walking in faith together. Now we're all more encouraged by your willingness to trust the group, by your willingness to come and pray about this. The fellowship is sweeter. The eagerness and prayer is increased. You feel encouraged because other people are praying for your needs. I mean, we, just keep, we can just keep going. The implications for what this does in a small group or in a group of Christians who are helping each other grow. It's just an example. I just consider that maybe I, maybe I actually belittle and demean what God can do through this simple means of helping one another grow in discipleship. And don't ever let yourself think that that's not your job. That's not your job. The plan for Jesus is that he has given apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists to the church so that they can equip the church to do the work of the ministry, which is to bring the church and build it up to the fullness of the stature of Christ and maturity. The church is supposed to help build up the church, like we said. It's not the pastor's job. That's your job. That's our job, corporately, mutually. In his book, Redeemers in the Hands, or Sinners in the Hands of Redeeming God, I think is the title of it, Paul Tripp talks about how people in need of change are God's ways of helping people in need of change. If you're broken, if you're maybe even not fully matured yet, which is all of us, God still wants to use you to help one another. Paul Tripp recalls this night, he says, Sam, one of his members, called me in panic. It had been an ordinary day. Get up, go to work, do his job until quitting time. But as he was rushing home, he was approached by a desperate man. The man said that his life was a mess. He didn't even know where he was going to sleep that night. Sam could tell that he wasn't a seasoned street person, hoping to be a conduit of help. Sam took him home and called his pastor, me, Paul Tripp says. Paul, he said, I came across this guy who lost his job, had a terrible fight with his wife, and is thrown out on the street. And I thought I'd bring him over to your house so that you could give him the help that he needs. Is, is now okay? Before Sam could say anything else, I responded, isn't God's love amazing? God cares about this man and put one of his children in his path. God cares about you and has given you an opportunity to be an instrument in his hands. I am persuaded that God never gets a wrong address and he intends to use you in this man's life. Let me pray for you right now that God will fill your heart with love and your mind with wisdom. And when I finished, Sam said, but I don't think I'm able. And I interrupted, Paul Tripp says, I will continue to pray for you tonight and I will call you in the morning. I am so encouraged by your ministry to this man. I said goodbye and I hung up the phone. You might be in some great need. You might know of a great need. The Lord has assigned you to by his providence. You might be Sam. Sam, the normal Christian, the member in your church, or consider that Jesus has commissioned you. You're someone's Sam. Or there's some Sam that can help you. That's the model that Jesus commissioned to the church, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, exhorting one another, building one another up. So I hope today that you have a renewed vision 
of the God-energized struggle for lifelong discipleship. Renewed vision. I'll shrink a portion of my sermon here for time, but just know that in the New Testament, over and over and over, Christians had to be reminded about things. Did you know that? Did you, could you guess that that was even ever an issue? If you've known a Christian for five minutes, you know we need to be reminded of things. We forget discipleship. We forget the Great Commission. We forget the gospel. The church in Corinth forgot that Jesus rose from the dead. We need to be reminded. So if you listen today, maybe you would say, I just need to have a new vision, a new mind. Be reminded about discipleship. I need to be in it somewhere. I need to be receiving it. I need to be helping give it somewhere. And have that vision of a God-energized struggle. Discipleship is a God-energized struggle. Go with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. It's in the 900 somewhere, 983. Colossians 1, 28. Paul talking about his ministry to the church in Colossae. And just watch the flow of who's doing what and who's energizing what and what it's like. Let me tell you, this is one of the most encouraging passages for someone helping other people follow Jesus Christ and grow as a disciple, or even being a disciple for that matter. Colossians 1, 28, Paul says, Him, that's Jesus Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. We're discipling. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal, maturity in Christ, growing in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's an important verse, verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What is Paul doing? Paul says, I am working to present everyone mature in Christ. Disciple, help others follow Jesus. How is Paul doing it? Paul says, with all his energy, with God's energy. It's like getting your phone plugged in. Like you have, you have that little moment where your phone goes red or orange or whatever your phone does and you just lose it. Like your life is like you can't breathe and you gotta find a phone power outlet. It's his energy that leads to discipleship. It's his empowering energy that gives Paul the ability to keep going. And what's it like? What's it like? Paul says that he is struggling, struggling in discipleship with all God's energy. The word struggle there is the same word from which we get agonizing. I think it's helpful because agonizing just sounds painful. And Paul doesn't mean struggle like, you know, last hour at soccer practice. This is hard. Some synonyms in English would be excruciating. Torturous, piercing, as if someone were describing crucifixion, which is fitting because this is how Paul referred to his ministry of discipleship a few verses back in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. The only path to spreading the gospel 
and making disciples grow in maturity is the road through Golgotha. It's the only way it happens. The only way, the only path of discipleship is an agonizing, take up your cross, follow me path. I'll share with you just an example of this kind of tenacity. Reverend Joseph Willis is the great-grandfather of one of our church members, Jane Kendrick. In the last couple of weeks or so, she gave me a little clip of an article about their family heritage, specifically about Reverend Joseph Willis and his son who was standing in the picture. And the article says this. It's pointing to a tall, stately monument marking the burial place of Reverend Joseph Willis, who was the first Baptist missionary minister to preach in Louisiana, west of the Mississippi River. At age 40, in 1804, he preached the first Protestant sermon west of the Mississippi in Louisiana. It was not until eight years later, eight years later, that he established the first church building. And the church, if you could call it that, was just five men and one woman. The Old Baptist Association records remember him this way. The gospel was proclaimed by him in these regions before the American flag was hoisted here. Before the church began to send out missionaries, he, at his own expense and frequently at the risk of his life, came to these parts preaching the gospel of the Redeemer. Family legend says that he worked barefooted and walked great distances to visit and preach to small groups. He rode logs in order to cross streams or travel downstream to reach some of his destinations. He was persistent, risking imprisonment by the Catholics in his intense desire to preach. The monument for Joseph Willis now reads, hardships, hunger, and the constant danger of those early days failed to daunt the spirit of Reverend Joseph Willis. I mean, what a family testimony. But Christians, what a wonderful example of discipling and ministering in growth through agony and to make it a lifelong discipleship. I don't want us to be in any kind of false narrative that thinks discipleship is just going to happen real quickly one Thursday night in a home. But that is a lifelong struggle energized by God. In his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson remarks just how little our world thinks in terms of long obedience about anything. He says, one aspect of the world that I have been able to identify as harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. It is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain that interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence of mature Christian discipleship is slim. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold as it is packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes into the garbage heap. There's a great market for a religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship 
in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. For some, it is a weekly jaunt to church. For others, occasional visits to spiritual services. Some with a bent for religious entertainment and sacred diversion. Scion. Plan, some plan their lives around special events like retreats, rallies, and conferences. We go to see a new personality, hear a new truth, get to get a new experience or somehow expound our otherwise humdrum lives. The religious life is defined as the latest and newest. Zen, faith healing, human potential, psychology, successful living, geography, Armageddon. We'll do anything, something, until something else comes along. But long obedience and discipleship is just that. It's not always quick. It's not always easy. If Paul can himself spend three and a half years in Corinth and still have Christians getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and still have Christians suing each other and still have Christians questioning the validity of the resurrection, then who are we to think that we can make maturity happen like a Pop-Tart? I love Chick-fil-A. One of the reasons I love Chick-fil-A is no matter how busy Chick-fil-A is, they always get you out in like 12 minutes or less in the line, it goes fast. Life's not always like that. Discipleship is not like that. It's lifelong. It can be slow sometimes. It can steep like tea rather than pop like popcorn in the microwave. And Christians, you are not always going to change as fast as Chick-fil-A can fry chicken. We're more like pottery being shaped in God's hands, spinning and spinning and spitting And God adds water, and he adds the word, and he adds trial. He takes some of the clay away. He adds new clay, and he keeps shaping and forming and spinning and spinning over time with careful, hands-on attention. And his plan for for that kind of craft, his plan for forming and shaping us is to use his own people as tools. As Paul said, we are God's fellow workers 1 Corinthians 3.9. There's a great example in the Bible of a man named Mark. In Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas are transitioning from their first missionary journey to the second. And Paul and Barnabas actually get in a sharp disagreement, the text says. And the disagreement was about a man named Mark who had left them in the first missionary journey. He just kind of tapped out halfway through. And Barnabas, we find out, is Mark's cousin. He wants to take Mark with him. Give him another chance. Let's, let's take him with us. And Paul is firm, says, Mark doesn't go with us. And their disagreement was so sharp that Paul went one way and Barnabas went another way. So we might be left to assume, you know what, that's it for Mark in the Bible. <laughs> so that was his usefulness. But we see at the very end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4, There are a lot of people who left Paul alone, but he didn't consider Mark one of them. 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 11, Paul says, writing to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, he deserted me. He's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. And then Paul tells Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you 
for he is very useful to me in the ministry. There's a difference in slow discipleship and total desertion here. Demas left the faith. Mark just needed to grow. And here's Paul at the end of his life, his life being poured out as a drink offering, he says, and he's asking for that guy who years ago he wouldn't even take on a mission trip with him. Jamie Dunlop in his book says it took years, but over time, thousands of conversations about how to apply God's word really did change our church. You never know what this week's discussion, prayer, Bible study, open vulnerability might do. It's going to be someone's help. Someone's help. There was Christian left alone by pliable and obstinate in the slow of despond. While in the bog of despond, it says, a man came to him, to Christian, whose name was Help. And he asked Christian, what are you doing in this slow? Christian replied, I came this way looking for the gate of the celestial city, escaping the wrath to come, and I fell in. Help replied to him, But why did you not look for the steps? Christian says, fear followed me so hard that I just fled and I just fell in. Help responds, then give me your hand. So Christian gave him his hand and help drew him out and set him upon sound ground and bid him on his way to the celestial city. In my little version of Christian's story by John Bunyan that was printed in 1957, That happens between Christian and help on page 15 of a 308-page journey. We need a renewed vision of the God-energized struggle for lifelong discipleship together. Let's pray. God, would you be with us this morning? Help us. As we have prayed here with our hearts and our minds, would you convict us? Would you encourage us by your Spirit? Father, help us not to be hearers of the word only, but doers. Help us to consider how your word has commissioned us, how Christ, our Savior and King, has commissioned us And might we consider with our minds and our hearts how we might obey. Help us discuss with our spouses and our friends. Help us look at our calendars and our budgets and consider how can we follow the Great Commission where we are to exhort, to teach, to encourage one another to observe all that you've commanded us. Thank you, Father. Would you be with us for your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name, amen.